grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 48 strong, which means we're up and down the state. So if you have any paranormal, paranormal needs or you think you have any paranormal needs, I can't say the word today, <laughs> we can get to you and help you out with that. Um, if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, there's a little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen where you can subscribe, and that's our mascot. He's got, if you look real close, he's got a Sherlock Holmes cap on and a magnifying glass. How many ghosts you see like that? Except maybe Sherlock Holmes ghost. I don't know. Anyway, we've got over 350 videos over there of different topics. I'm a journalist, so I like to vary my topics on the show. So I think there's a little something for everybody over there at that site over at the YouTube site. Also, if you're watching from Twitch, please be sure to subscribe along with TikTok, okay? Because we do have a TikTok, California Haunts, on TikTok. So you can find us over there where we have shorts of these of these shows to get to tantalize you. And then you can head over to the website at CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com and check out the shows in full, okay? Also, if you want to get a hold of the Paranormal Team, CaliforniaHauntsRadio.com or CaliforniaHaunts.org. Okay, I keep having to remind myself, it's just too many California haunts, tongue twisters, all right? My guest tonight, I'm fascinated by this, is Mark Ollie, who uh, has located or seen some crystal skulls. That's right, like Indiana Jones crystal skulls, he's, he's seen them, he's like the real Indiana Jones. And he's going to be with us tonight to talk about, his, about the crystal skulls and ancient history as well. So uh, without further ado, let's do this. Hi. Hi. Good, 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 good evening to you. Good evening. Well, it's evening over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you. Too bloody early over here. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I, I know you kind of burst onto the screen with enthusiasm a few minutes ago, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's just to wake you up. <laughs> Let's get everybody going. <laughs> that's how it is. When, yeah. Once that camera turns on, I'm like, woo, you know. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me about you, sir. Um, basically, I'm a, a writer, a TV presenter in the UK and on Sky. Um, I'm an archaeologist by profession. Uh, by hobby, I do art, I do geology, and I play drums in a rock band called wow. Copper Worm, so you can go and look us up. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a, a man of many parts, hopefully all of them working. So there you go. <laughs> Dang, you are a busy guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've just finished a week in the studio doing an album um, that's coming out later in the year. So hopefully um, I'll be able to post more information. Uh, people can come and find me on Facebook and books and things that I write and DVDs I make are all on Amazon. So that's got the advert out of the way. There you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell me about your archaeology. Um, gosh, uh, nobody's really asked me about the background of that. Um, I started... Um, 
I started a long time ago. My dad was a volunteer digger um, in the 1950s and 60s over here before archaeology had really become what it is now, which obviously is a proper serious scientific industry. Um, and so he was able to take me on a few digs when I was tiny. So the first dig I was ever on, I was eight years old. Um, and he dumped me in a trench with a trowel and it was a Roman site. And he just went, well, there you go, get going on that, you know, do a bit of scraping in that sand. So I had a go. And of course, the first thing you find, the first piece of Roman pottery you find, you go, oh, look what I found, you know, and you pick it up and you go, and you're showing everybody this. And they're all like, put it back, put it back. You're not supposed to move that, you know. So, um, so I sort of put it back and then just carried on as a volunteer digger. I went to um, uh, art college across the road. Uh, was the museum so I could go and study archaeology there at night school which I did um, for many many years from about 1978 through to 1983 84 I was with Liverpool University um, doing all kinds of digs castles monasteries you name it all sorts of stuff uh, then I went off into the music business for about 20 odd years then I came back set up my own archaeology unit started writing books on history and archaeology um, and here we are. That's kind of how I've ended up here. Um, so, yeah, I've been all over the world, done all kinds of crazy things. Um, and uh, a lot of it in the name of archaeology, especially in recent years, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, it brings us pretty well up to date, I think. That's really cool, though. You, you, you've got a heck of a life going on there. Well, yeah. I mean, you only, you only live once, you know what I mean? Right. And I kind of, uh, I cottoned onto that when I was at school because I went to the old style grammar school. So like people were training to be dentists and, you know, loss adjusters and accountants and things like that. And I was, I was like, no, that's, that's not where I'm going. You know, um, I, I saw Led Zeppelin back in the seventies and I thought, hmm, that's a job I'd like to do. Um, and I was lucky enough to be able to do it right through the 1980s, right through the 1990s. Um, and I'm still here in, well, a long time later, still doing the same thing. Yeah. And it's fun to do the stuff you love to do. I mean, it's horrible to go to a job and then slog through every day doing something you don't want to do just for the paycheck. Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, you've got to, there's a caveat on that. You've got to say, well, I mean, if you're talented in a particular way mm -hmm. and, you know, you've got the abilities to do certain things and you train and improve those abilities, that is almost like your responsibility to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's nice early on to decide what you're going to do, pick that and stick to it. You know, uh, I was lucky. I had two strings to me bow. I had music mm -hmm. and archaeology um, and recently writing as well. I've become a writer, so that helps. Um, and then people like, you know, television and radio suddenly take an interest in you. And, you know, here we are. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. My hat's crooked. That's how you can tell it's early for me. My hat's oh. crooked on my head. Look at that. I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't have that problem because I have less hair than I used to. So. <laughs> Things I'm I don't not... do for my UK interviews, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. um, tell me about the Crystal Skulls. How did you go about doing your research and everything on that? Well, it, it was interesting, really. I mean, as, as an archaeologist, obviously, I've, wa I've watched all the Indiana Jones films. So the, the last one <laughs> focused on the Crystal Skulls. Right. Um, around about the same time that film came out, um, a friend of mine who is heavily connected with Freemasonry um, was given a skull to look after uh, many years ago, decided he was too old to look after it, and then kind of he, he contacted me and he said, well, do you want to be the next custodian of this skull? So I got the full story behind it. Um, you know, it was um, it was given by a village of Mayans um, out in 
uh, mm -hmm. South America to a guy that was out there as an aid worker after the Second World War. Um, and he brought it back to this country. He in, he got too old. So in turn, he passed that on to his lodge master, who again now is too old. So mm -hmm. he's passed that on to me to look after. So it's got a bit of a provenance to it. And it very clearly looks like an Aztec skull. The Mayans are not mad about Aztecs. They, mm -hmm. You know, it's not really their culture. Uh, so that brought it across to here. He passed it on to me. I've, I'm looking at this skull thing, and I need to know a bit more about this. And then the entire world goes into lockdown. So I've, I've got sort of two, two and a half years, three years to do research. So I thought, oh, do you know what? There's, there's got to be a book in this. Uh, but the book itself's broader. I mean, it's wider. It, it covers the whole issue of, ah, there it is, brilliant. Um, the publisher would never forgive me if I, I didn't get that image up there somewhere. Uh, dash out and buy it. It's available on Amazon. Um, it's a very uh, broad book. It's only small. It's a very quick read, so it's it's not, you know, it won't do your head in. It's a nice-sized book written in plain English, and it looks at, basically, the history of the human head in all its forms. So it starts back in prehistory with fossilized heads, and then it goes right through um, the humans, human's attitude towards the image of the head, skulls, it includes stretched heads, it includes severed heads, it includes crystal heads, crystal skulls. Um, it just goes through the whole thing. And, and then it has a sort of a message for the, for the future, you know, for the, uh, for the years ahead where perhaps mankind is going. So it's, it's, there's a lot of archaeoscience in there and quite a bit about DNA and stuff. But uh, don't let that put you off because um, it's uh, it's getting some good reviews. It is getting some good reviews. So when you talk about the Crystal Skulls, I mean, you mentioned Indiana Jones, obviously. I mean, how many <laughs> yeah. did you find three or four or whatever was in there? How many of these things exist do you know of? Um, okay. Uh, the story goes, in the 1970s, they started bringing a lot of them together. Mm -hmm. um, and the story was that there was probably about 13 or whatever of these, you know, magical number out there. The main primary one being the Mitchell Hedges Skull, which I'm convinced is real for one reason one reason only. Um, it, it is such a superb piece of work. You know, there are no tool marks on it. It's anatomically correct. And there's no reason to doubt Anna's story about how she found it, you know, under an altar in Belize, you know. So oh. no reason to doubt it. So what they then did was they brought all the skulls that they knew that were knocking around at that time that were made of clear quartz crystal they brought together uh, in the 1970s. I think they expected them all to talk to each other or start to glow like they do in the movie or, or whatever. Nothing particularly, okay. you know, earth-shattering happened. Mm -hmm. Um but then I started digging a bit. I started looking at these skulls. And when you start to look around the world, there's one in a ballpark in Coba, which is set in the floor. There's another one in an archaeological report for a village just outside um, Mexico City, where they found one that was portable. That was kind of, you know, hand-sized. Um, and then apart from that, the others, the other skulls worldwide, the ones in museums, most of them only date at the very most to about 200 years ago. They've all got tool marks of one sort or another on them. And most of them go back to a dealer called Boban in Paris. Um, that's where a lot of them came from, um, except the Mitchell Hedges skull, which, you know, there's been all kinds of debate as to whether you know, it was bought in an auction or made as a fake or whatever, but nothing substantial has really come of that. So I know of, including my own, about four. There's about four that you can say are ab absolutely without doubt are real. And then there's probably another dozen or so that are old, but not that old, 
Um, I think when you're talking about old, most of them date from about 800 to 1,000 years ago. Um, so to qualify as old, they'd have to be sort of pre-Columbian. They'd have to be right. five or 600 years or older. And they seem to have stopped producing them like everything else at the time that Cortes and the Spanish invaded South America. They just, the culture ended. So they seem to have stopped making them then, except now. Because since the 1970s, there are, there are just tens of thousands of these things out there. Um, most of them are machine made. Most of them, you know, are polished really quickly. There's no effort. There's no time taken on any of them. Uh, so, yeah, of, of genuine, actual genuine ones, I would say probably about four. Maybe if you want to bump that total up to maybe about 20 with ones that have some age to mm -hmm. them. Um, but not a huge amount. There's not a huge number of them out there. There should be more, should definitely mm -hmm. be more. Uh, but I don't think the South American authorities are telling people when they find them because they're fed up with people stealing them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. which is fair enough, I suppose, you know. Uh, yeah. So what were they used for, rituals or, or decoration or what? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Um, obviously, they refract the light. Mm -hmm. They're made of quartz, so they have an energetic quality about them. They're electrical and they're magnetic. So if you pick one of these things up, you know, the, the sort of the electricity and magnetism in you can sense the electric and magnetism in them. So they have a bit of a, you know, woo, you know, you can kind of feel it. Right. If they're proper, the proper quartz crystal, they're freezing cold. So you get a reaction to that as well. Um, what they're actually for, nobody really knows for certain, because uh, the one in the ballpark in Cobra is not portable anyway. It's fixed. So that's obviously a representation of the fact that if you lose the ball game, then you're dead. You know, that's that's the message in that one. Yeah. Um, but but the portable ones, uh, nobody really knows. Uh, representations of, of death, representations of the afterlife, perhaps. Um, what is interesting is uh, over here, um, after that kind of story of these things containing knowledge or information broke out in the 1970s, okay. some people in a university over here tried to work with silica which is what quartz is and they came up with the idea of writing data using a laser into glass and they can do it so it outlines in the book how they've now succeeded in producing these little glass discs um, and they can do it in 5d they can write in 5d into these discs wow. and two two of these discs apparently would hold the entire of the knowledge of the human race and they'd last for sort of thirty-five thousand years before any kind of deform deformity would occur. But of course, the problem is, if there is any information written in those those schools, we don't know how to get it back out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you guys will know about this. A lot of um, a lot of um, paranormal investigators, ghost hunters, uh, search for high contents of quartz right. in the environment because it's known that quartz, you know, has this record a quality to it yes. and maybe some of what we're seeing in terms of apparitions and the paranormal is playback you know mm -hmm. from the environment uh, and it does seem likely that quartz is playing a part because you know in building materials and what have you mm -hmm. uh, the higher the content of quartz the, the more um, creepy and phenomenal that particular place appears to be well you guys will probably already know that anyway right right <laughs> right i find it, i just think it's interesting because i mean the the, the skull is beautiful Yes. I mean, the Mitchell Hedges one's breathtaking and the one I've got's not bad. Um, I, you know, I, I would say any skull that's kind of, let, let's say, life size. So mm -hmm. from from a human child upwards or slightly larger than life size, any skull that's life size probably qualifies as 
you know, falling in that bracket of genuine. If it's genuinely old and there's no tool marks on it and it's got provenance and it's proper quartz, you know, and it's not modern, um, again, you're probably looking at a real one. So, yeah, they are breathtaking. They're amazingly well made. Um, it must must have taken a long time to polish them. Absolutely. And how did you come about get, um, getting the one that you have? Well, like I say, um, I just got this phone call from a friend of mine who um, he's a Masonic Lodge master and he'd been past this skull oh, yeah. by the person to whom it was originally gifted. Um, and I've got it now. Uh, mm -hmm. pff, what I'm going to do with it, I don't know. I mean, I, occasionally it goes on display, it goes on exhibition. Uh, we did a UFO expo um, with uh, quite with Gaia, actually. They were the sponsors. Um, they wanted a, an archaeology exhibition in the foyer of, of real mysteries, real stuff. So I said, yeah, I can do that. I can curate that. Um, and, you know, the school was an obvious candidate to go into that. Sure. We, we finished up with two. Um, there was another one uh, made from what appeared to be volcanic obsidian, which is the same material. Right. Uh, but it looked to be sort of conquistador yeah. period. It looked to be around about four or five hundred years old because someone had Christianized it by pecking a cross into the top uh, and putting various other markings on it. Being an archaeologist like you are, um, let's talk about this a little bit because your book is uh, Crystal Skulls and Human Heads. Have you seen, you know, when you look at different skulls, have you seen differences in, in the shape of heads or anything like that? <laughs> Uh, yes, um, there's a lot of dramatic differences and um, that comes out in the book. Um, for example, there's an entire section on elongated heads, which are these these things, are, you know, sort of three times the size of, of a mm -hmm. normal human head. Um, I do a whole chapter on those because um, it, it looks like they were a separate species, a bit like Homo erectus and Neanderthalis and Denisovus and all the other sort of offshoots. Um, and because we're Homo erectus, so there, there are all these different species of human. It looks like the Paracas in particular were a different species because their heads grew that way, you know, from birth. They weren't in any way uh, deformed. That's how they were. Um, but then the humans, us, we seem to want to copy that. Mm -hmm. So you can very often find this cradle boarding, this stretched head. Um, deformation that you find on some of the skulls, you find that as well. So obviously the guys with the bigger heads had a lot of advantages that, mm -hmm. you know, people tried to copy artificially. Um, and I've, I've, yes, I've handled one or two of those skulls. Uh, if you go back to the fossil record, there's a lot of skulls back there, which the Victorians thought were, you know, the missing link or monkeys or whatever. It's the classic, you know, with the huge eyebrows here right. and they kind of tip back and they have the big stuck out jaw. Uh, because the cranial size, the inside size, is big enough to hold a decent-sized brain, mm -hmm. a lot of them could very well be different species of us. The, you can't get DNA out of a rock. That's the problem right. with, with them being fossilized. Right. Um, so, yeah, I've seen quite a few of those as well. Uh, there's loads of them in the book. Loads of them appear in the book. Is, isn't that like the thing? Because I remember with my nieces and my mother telling me that, you know, you have to lay the baby in the crib a certain, you know, certain ways because the head, because the bones and the head are soft and you know they'll get all misshapen. Yes, in in archaeology, um, especially during Tudor times and things like that, when when uh, binding babies, you know, mm -hmm. was was quite common. You do find things like that. Um, very often, what ends up happening is the back of the head ends up flat. So you've got this, this beautiful looking skull at the front and then it, it's flat at the back. And you know then that they've been bound in the cradle, you know, so you can change the shape of the human skull. Mm -hmm. But the um, anatomical biology, you can't change things like the, the sutures 
that run um, and the you know where the hole is at the back the, where, where it joins to the to the spine you can't change things like that but in the paracas they are radically different mm-hmm. you know they don't have sutures and and the holes are miles further back and so it's quite obviously something in their dna that's actually mm-hmm. creating that um yeah so yeah you do find them you find differences in head shape uh, it's quite common well that brings me to my next question now are, are these elongated heads are these people i mean uh does this come from what they call the giants, or is this just normal people? You know, normal people that ended up with you know with that DNA for that type of head. Um, well, if you're dealing with various species, I mean, I'll take giants for example. Um, up to fairly recently, we didn't have Homo floresiensis, which are these tiny little three foot six eye. They're calling them the Hobbit people. They are a different species. They are genetically different. You know, um, they were tiny. Then you got us. I mean, you know, Robert Wadlow used to live in over here. Right. Robert Wadlow was, you know, nine foot eleven. Now, if that's not a giant, I'll eat my shorts. You know, I mean, I, the reasoning behind that doesn't matter. You know, right. these people of sort of eight, nine, ten foot. They they exist. We know they exist. We've got records of them. So why not, like all other species, why not go the next step and have something really enormous? I always mm-hmm. use the example of cats. I mean, you mix a lion and a tiger, you get a thing called a liger, and it's the size mm-hmm. of a horse. Admittedly, it only lives half the length of time, but, it, but it's massive, right. absolutely massive. And then there's this tiny little thing called a palm cat that lives in the jungle, and it literally sits in the palm of your hand. So that's just the diversity we're left with presumably the same thing applied to human beings presumably we were just as diverse you know if there's 30 or 40 different species of cats there were 30 or 40 different species of us so why not why not giants etc um yes they did interbreed so that's the second half of the question there are examples especially with uh, ourselves and neanderthals because we know we interbred the denisovans definitely interbred with the neanderthals we know that there are two races from asia that are unique that appear mixed in with the Denisovans. So clearly we were all compatible, very much like lions and tigers are. Uh, but it looks like we only interbred more towards the end. Um, in, in early times, uh, the scientists are talking about a Lord of the Rings type world mm-hmm. where humanity is diverse, you know, really, really diverse. Uh, which then, I suppose that helps to solve some of the mysteries. I mean, if you've got some guy who's 35 foot tall and he's a bodybuilder, you know, building some of these prehistoric sites, shifting, you know, 300 ton blocks and that, it doesn't seem quite so impossible anymore, you know. I'm not saying they didn't wouldn't have used technology because I'm sure they right, would have done, right, but, right. you know, if you've got such a huge diversity of people. And again, these guys with enormous heads, you know, if if one of them was born with the capabilities of Einstein, Imagine having three Einstein brains stacked one on top of the, the one on top of the other inside one of these enormous heads. Well, you know, get ten of them in a room and they'd work out how to build a pyramid in about ten minutes. You know, absolutely, it, yeah. It's not difficult. What we're looking at, uh, in, in essence, is what we've lost. And um, what we tend to do as human beings is we don't look for what's not there. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's something the book does. The book is looking at this trace evidence for what may have been there but maybe now isn't you know uh, which makes it an interesting read it is an interesting read how many versions and i, I know you're kind of talking about this but obviously you know the the uh, dna that we all have homo erectus and all this going on 
how many versions of the human skull do you think or how many versions of the skull? I'm not gonna say human skull because Homo erectus, you know, and all those guys. Yeah. How many versions of, of the skulls do you know of? Oh wow. Um, depends how far back you go. Um, we only go back. Uh, when I say we, I mean Homo erectus, proper identifiable. Mm-hmm. We only probably go back to somewhere between maybe forty-six and fifty thousand BC. But some of the skulls we've got, they go back to sort of. 300,000, 350,000, 400,000, you know, these are the ones that are turned to stone. And it's confusing because we've we've got the whole picture clouded by evolutionary theory, Mm -hmm. which tries to link all these skulls up with very little evidence to do so. So it just depends numerically whether you go for the diversity, in which case there are hundreds of different varieties. Or if you just go for this one idea that Homo erectus is a single species with offshoots, there may only be, you know, 30 or 40 varieties. Um, personally, if I nail my colours to the mast, I think probably you'd be somewhere in the hundreds for, you know, different varieties of us, say, you know, half a million years ago. There'd be lots of us. Um, you know, uh, even if some of us have, have mutated and developed and, you know, gone into offshoots, you'd still need the basic building blocks of who and what we are today. Um, and I think, yeah, you're probably well over 100 different varieties of humans because um, that's the diversity that used to be here before we all got hit by meteorites and had tidal right. waves and, you know, things like that happened. Do you think um, when you look back at, at human history, you know, over the millions of years, is there any time where maybe Homo erectus is is living here along with others? Well, simple answers, yes. Uh, You don't have to go back that far. Um, The poor old Paracas only died out when the Spanish arrived. So if you only go, if you go back about four or 500 years, there's all these guys with enormous heads all sat around going, what do we do now? You know, that we were all dropping dead of influenza and smallpox and you name it. And these guys are, you know, conquering us. What do we do? I, I, I presume if they were, you know, wise, which I believe they were, they'll have realized that a lot of species have just gone quietly into the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably what happened to the Paracas. I think they just died out, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of species. Uh, we're losing species now at quite an alarming rate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it, the same kind of process has occurred with us. But, you know, um, the, one of the worrying aspects of it is that from an archaeological point of view, wherever Homo erectus turns up, the other species tend to decrease rapidly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we are a kind of, a, you know, a nasty, aggressive sort of, you know, violent, warmongering race that right. that's being supported by archaeology history and what we're finding and a lot of the other races were just not prepared for that you know they weren't that wasn't the way of the the very very ancient world that's not how it operated so i don't think we're here because we're clever and we you know we've survived by intelligence i think we're here because you know we are literally the last survivors by virtue of violence and war i think that's basically how it's ended up with being mostly just us Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a shame. Actually, one of the species, which I will believe it to be a species, in the Victorian times, they had this thing called the, the hairy men of Mandalay. Um, and they were beings, human beings that lived in China, and they just were completely covered in hair, top to bottom, totally hairy. 
um, and some probably somewhere around about the time of the Second World War, um, they just vanished. They're not there anymore. So that's within my mum and dad's lifetime. You know, it's it's only yesterday in terms of history that they've dis- disappeared. They've vanished from the pages of history. Um, Could that also be, you know, inbreeding? To, uh, I'm saying inbreeding with, you know, with, with the other species because eventually the dominant gene being home, you know, homo, let's say for, for just the sake of argument, homo erectus would be the dominant gene in that. So as these things maybe were inbreeding with homo erectus little by little, all that got phased out. Um, generally speaking, inbreeding doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and generally speaking, it is a last ditch attempt to at mm-hmm. least have something survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the DNA that we do have appears to be showing. Um, for example, the highest incidence of Neanderthal DNA is in Australia. So obviously the last of the Neanderthals must have made it across there to Australia. Um, and it's there in amongst the uh, the Aboriginal population. Uh, I think it's about 20, 20 something percent, 24 percent, 26 percent DNA uh, in the highest um, the highest incidence of it. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of it does happen towards the end. People, people, humans, you know, want to survive. We want to carry on um, and they will, you know, do their best to achieve that. Right. Right. And I know, you know, um, you look at the world's population now and there's still like there's like there's still some tall people out there boy you know we got the basketball players and whoever else so some yeah. of it right yeah well some of the african tribes um regularly regularly exceed seven feet so mm-hmm. you know the, and every now and again you do get somebody like robert wadlow and uh, there was a chinaman called chang and mm-hmm. uh, there was another lady as well in china that, that was a tallest female at the time mm-hmm. they do occasionally appear um it is genetic but we treat it as an illness because the the uh, the genes that stop you from growing are absent mm-hmm. in those people, so they just keep going, which does make you wonder how far they'd have gone if they'd have lived longer. You know, how tall mm-hmm. would they have ended up? Um, so yeah, mm, interesting stuff. They do still appear, and you know, or there are races, and I'm not pointing anybody out, but when you do look at them, you can kind of see the ancient, you know, stuff on their yeah, faces. Yeah, yeah. Still. Well, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I often wonder shaping, about that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, faces. Uh, you yeah. can imagine these guys walking around with enormous elongated heads, you know, coming face to face with somebody that's Aboriginal, say from Australia, coming mm-hmm. face to face with one of us and mm-hmm. maybe some chap from Africa. And to mm-hmm. be honest, I think in the past we were the odd one out. I actually think they would have looked upon us and hesitated to comment on this plague of white things that were invading them. You know, it's kind Mm -hmm. of, it's almost like the reverse of what we have now. Um, And there are enough, there is enough diversity within Homo erectus for us to, to have differences, continental differences, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's a shame to use those differences. Um, That that will ultimately be our undoing. Uh, We need to go the opposite way, you know, as a species, if we're going to, kind of make this whole planet work the way it's supposed to. We need to be getting together. Um, I I think I said this in the book, you know, if one person is unique and they have a unique look and they have a unique uh, personality and they have a unique way of doing things, when that person dies, it's an extinction event. You know, Mm -hmm. they're gone. They're gone for good. You know, nothing is coming back at this point. We're having terrible trouble uh, reanimating uh, DNA and what have you 
mm-hmm. in any meaningful way. So, you know, uh, you could have had these these enormously intelligent folks out there, you know, on a par with Stephen Hawking, and there could have been hundreds of them, and and they're gone. You know, we we just we're, we're worse off for it. Uh, so the whole idea, it's a shame because the whole prejudice thing kind of grew out of evolution and the idea that, you know, there were lesser human beings and right. better human beings. And it's it's an outmoded Victorian concept. You know, it's 200 years behind mm-hmm. the times, uh, but people are still hanging on to it. And, it, it you know, it just it's like the elephant in the room. You just need to get rid of it <laughs> right, <laughs> completely. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I agree. If you had the chance to go back in time, would you to go check all this stuff out? Hmm. That's interesting because that speaks to the last chapter in the book because I deal with time travel in that. Um, If I had the opportunity to go back and have a look, the answer would be yes. I would be delighted to go back and have a look. But obviously I wouldn't want to go back and interfere with the timeline Mm -hmm. because if you mess that one up, you know, you could actually yourself, you could just disappear or the technology you were using to time travel could just disappear. You'd create an anomaly. Um, but I think we'd be really surprised by how different things would be only a short time past, you know, going back. Uh, it's like over here in the UK, uh, it's only in the last 150 years or so that language has been standardized, that all the accents and the spelling and the way people speak in different regions and all that, that's only disappeared over here in the last 150 to 200 years. So you think, oh, yeah, let's go back to Georgian times. Let's go and look what was going on in the 1700s. You'd, you'd really struggle to understand a word that anyone was saying, you know, and that's that's only six generations back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you do that in America and you go back to, you know, before the times of the Civil Wars when the first settlers were out there, you'd struggle to understand what half of them were saying, you know, um, and they would really, really not get have a clue what we were on about, you know, mm-hmm. not not the slightest idea. So, um, yeah, time travel, that, that's, yeah, interesting. <laughs> I think about that Netflix show. What is it, Highlander? Yeah, Where yeah. She, goes, um, she ends up going back in time to medieval times and she's trying to cope with being back there and understand what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, we have that actual actual problem as archaeologists. We have that because we run across um customs and quirks and things that they would have understood at the time mm-hmm. uh, language differences you know um social constructs in particular if you don't contextualize stuff if you don't put it into their you know social economic context or whatever uh, you come up with some really weird and wacky stuff like there's a lot of books out there i'm not going to drop any names but there's an awful lot of books out there that, that are taking things miles out of context um, uh, that just come up with these weird and wonderful. Um, I'll give you an example. I've never given you sure. anybody this before, but I'll give you an example. I've literally just signed a deal for my book on King Arthur, which I've been writing for the last 45 oh. years it's taken. So that's coming out later in the year. Um, this idea that, you know, Mary Magdalene was somehow the grail because, you know, she carried Jesus in a womb. So she's the grail. You know, because mm-hmm. life came out of, therefore, her womb is the chalice. You know, it's the cup. That's nonsense. You know, the first inklings of that only came out in the 1950s. You know, so you go back in time and they'd wonder what on earth you were talking about. You know, it, it's never been there. It's it's not there in history. And it's not there in fact. So it, needless to say, it gets a, 
a one-liner, I think, in my book where it just gets dismissed because it that's what happens when you take some bits and bobs, mm-hmm. join them all up, and mm-hmm. then drag drag them out of context and start putting your own ideas on them. You know, you've really got to be aware of what's going on. Um, yeah, definitely. Interesting. Uh, I'm a big fan of King Arthur. Hey, <laughs> so am I after all these years. <laughs> it's pretty awesome stuff. I was over in England probably about 20 years ago when I remember, you know, going to the different castles and stuff and then talking about King Arthur with my cousins. What makes him stand out and it makes him so mythical compared to others? Um, he came on the scene as a prominent leader mm-hmm. when things like the early version of the church and mm-hmm. the Roman Empire and all that it was effectively coming to an end. So he was the last of his kind, if you like. Mm-hmm. And then you get this enormous volcanic eruption, meteorite shower and all that sort of thing round about, you know, 542 AD-ish, 542 to 546. That obliterates then all the information that would normally have just flowed into our time, and it creates the Dark Ages. So he is literally the last character, in certainly in this country and possibly the world, the last character of a former Golden Age. Um, so, wow, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff got attracted to him. Um, and there's been so many people, you know, trying to find out about him. It's really annoying because uh, there was a guy called Gildas that wrote loads and loads of information in Wales mm-hmm. during Arthur's time. Um, and he wrote a history of King Arthur, uh, a life, you know, King Arthur's life. Mm-hmm. And then King Arthur went and killed his brother. So he took this book on the life of King Arthur and threw it in the river. <laughs> At which point everyone's like, no, don't do that, you know. So in one foul swoop, he basically created the legend that is King Arthur by absence of information, you know. So uh, hopefully the book I've just completed anyway will will fill in the gaps. Um, do you think um, the films on King Arthur have kind of made him into this wonderful human being and, with you know, with all this going mm-hmm. on with Camelot and all that, as opposed yeah. to what he really was? Well, that, that all started at the end of the Viking era with the Normans. As soon as the Normans come on the scene in the 1100s, they, uh, I mean, the Vikings really like King Arthur because they, they like the whole heroic thing and everything. It really, really appealed to Viking culture. So then it just got more and more solid with the Normans. They solidified it and put it to good use in terms of, you know, what they wanted politically and then made loads of stuff up. And they also failed to do what I just mentioned a, a minute ago. They failed to contextualize it. They didn't put it in the context of British tribal leaders of the, you know, four or 500 AD. They just mm-hmm. put it in their own time, which completely cocked everything up for everybody, you know. So, um, yeah, that, that's kind of the background to that. When you talk about that, how much, you don't have to give it away because of your book, but how much is actually true and how much is false, you know, from what people are seeing it's a difficult question because you've got to get hold of the oldest available information uh-huh. and then you've got to pick through it so that you can get rid of the stuff that's obviously later editions and try to get back to something that's behind it. Uh-huh. And it's not impossible, but it's taken me nearly half a century to do it. So the information's there. There, there are real characters. They do really exist and they do have a history. They have a time and a place and you know, and a purpose, and they fit very well into that time period, if, if you know where to look, which right. is, you know, middle of the 400s to the middle of the 500s. That's where they're sat. Um, and they're definitely there. They're definitely real. But an awful lot of stuff, you know, um, is 
actually a lot of it's misinterpretation just just not getting the right idea um when they talk about you know king arthur's round table well the original round table was the way they depicted the last supper you know so the inspiration for that the idea of it being round comes from um early christianity um, and the idea of it being a table well actually it might more likely have been a building where the tabla was the floor because um you know a tablus in anglo-saxon is a floor it's not actually a table stuck on legs um, so what they've done is they've taken something which is perfectly logical to someone of 500 AD. They would have got that straight away. And they've dragged it into their own time period. And they're having all these jousts and nightly feasts and medieval ladies and all the rest of it round this enormous round table, like the one that's hanging in Winchester. Um, that's medieval. Um, mm -hmm. Because they got the wrong end of the stick. You know, that's, that's not what it's about at all. Um, and the book, the book really goes into this in great detail. Hey, we're a bit promoting two books at once here. See, <laughs> it's a, it's just a, it's just a really good job. It's with the same publisher, so yeah, good old, good old Philip Mantle at Flying Disc Press. It's a good job he took this one on, or he'd be missing out right now. See, there um, you go. Um, my other question, then Lynn was, you know, I'll, I'll shift gears out of King Arthur. They okay. haven't found his grave yet, right? Uh, no, they have no idea where he is. Um, he was definitely buried. You know, he was put somewhere, and I've got some ideas, some suggestions in the book as to where that somewhere might be. But at the end of the day, because all the information was lost, mm -hmm. because of this enormous cataclysm, over here it was, it was known as the Yellow Plague. You know, they were talking about fire raining down out of the sky, you know. Um, so the records of that just vanished. Mm -hmm. No, Nobody kept a record of where he was. Um, it really is that simple. So he, he is out there somewhere. We just we just haven't found him yet. Um, you know, maybe if somebody stomps up enough money for me to do a documentary, we can go out there with you know lidar and see if we can find him. Do some ground penetrating radar mm -hmm. uh, and see if he's where I think he is. But uh, at the moment, he's quite happily sleeping somewhere. <laughs> you are so passionate about what you do, and I love, I love it. it. Yeah, absolutely it's, love it. Just bounces off of you. Yeah, yeah. you know. Do, do you go out to do digs now or do or, or are you mostly working from home on on researching well right right up to the lockdown um i could be seen wandering around dig sites doing various things identification i work with a, a local um archaeology group here in manchester you know i was doing quite a lot at that time and i go out doing lectures and tours obviously I, i'm teaching i was part of the faculty of chester for, for a heck of a long time uh, but then lockdown came so everything's changed and as i'm coming out of lockdown now i do find myself doing an awful lot more writing and mm -hmm. i'm doing an awful lot more stuff online but archaeology is not something you can do remotely you know right. you you really really literally have to get down a hole and have con physical contact with it so at some point in the not too distant future i could see me actually getting out onto sites again mm -hmm. um it'd be nice if it was in the name of something like king arthur or right. you know maybe turn crystal skulls into a documentary and then i can go flitting around the world looking at sites like which i really enjoy doing so you know it's it's going to be in the name of something that i get back in in, in a, a trench again but now the last the last few years have just been terrible terrible for archaeology mm. let me ask you this um you know when you watch movies i, I know indiana jones is, you know, <laughs> it is what it is but, but people people tend to look at those movies like that and the mummy and all these movies you know, as being like like what archaeology really is. How hard is it to find a museum quality piece? Um, 
going to dodge that a little bit by saying it depends on the museum. I suppose it depends what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. um, if you want something spectacular like, you know, Tutankhamun's treasure, right. uh, you're only going to get one of those, you know, every hundred years if you're lucky. Um, if you're looking for individual treasures, mm -hmm. I mean, like the metal detector groups over here are pulling up hordes of gold and silver on average about one every two to three years. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff out there still to be found, an enormous amount of stuff. Um, in my own career, I, I mean, I've I identified and handled lots and lots of stuff that people would regard as treasure. But for me, real treasure um, is things like I, through doing, you know, landscape survey and, and following some of the industrial archaeology, I ended up locating one of King Alfred's lost castles from the 800s. So uh, that's my own personal thing. You know, there's no value in that. It's no monetary value. It, it's just a big lump of, you know, uh, ground in a field. But at the end of the day, that's one of his burrs. It's one of the Anglo-Saxon burrs, and it was a lost burr. So for me, that's an, a major discovery. You know, that for me, that's up there with Tutankhamun's too. You know, it's, it's something that I'll only find perhaps maybe once in a lifetime. But I have had a fair few hits, you know, I've, I've found quite a lot of stuff over the years and it's, it's not uncommon to come across things of great value um, that do finish up, you know, in museums, uh, not just on display, but in the storerooms, you know, uh, there's things that do end up there. So um, potentially times that by the number of archaeologists that are in the UK, mm -hmm. you might have museum quality objects coming up every week. You know, depending on the dig and who you're working for. Um, the thing with Indiana Jones, I mean, you know, hats off to Spielberg and Lucas. They they do their research. Right. So if you are a fan of Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull, for example, right. if you want the background research, go and buy the book. Go and buy Crystal Skulls Absolutely. and Human Heads. Absolutely. Because I've ended up doing I've ended up doing precisely the same research there that his scriptwriters have done. Um, even in the last chapter, I tackle the whole issue of aliens and things like that. Um, I don't reach the same conclusions they reach. You know, I haven't got some enormous spacecraft flying up out of a volcano, um, but I don't really sound completely, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, life on other planets. There's another there's another question altogether. But yeah, if you're a fan of Indiana Jones, by all means, go and grab the book, you know, because it, it will show you what the script writers were looking at uh, when they put that together. A lot of the other movies as well are equally as good. Um, I'm toying with the idea of doing something biblical. So, you know, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark might come into play nice. um, again at some point in the not too distant future. When you, okay, you just opened up a rabbit hole with aliens, okay? <laughs> I knew it was. It's in the book, though, so I've got to be honest with you. So how do you feel about aliens, you know, and our ancient people? Um, I've come up with an interesting idea in the book. Um, uh, you mentioned time travel earlier, which again yeah. is a nice, a nice sort of lead into it. I am not an enormous fan of zipping in and out of planet Earth. You know, I, I'm, I'm not a great fan of moon landings and escaping the Van Allen belts and, you know, surviving radiation and all that. Um, but clearly something is happening, you know, as far as aliens are concerned, there's now well over a hundred years of evidence that there's, you know, if not hundreds of years of evidence that something's going on. So you can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You've got to accept the fact that things are happening. So what I say in the book is um, 
where would you go if you could time travel? If you were a species of human beings with enormous heads, because let's face it, the aliens have got heads, bodies, two arms, two legs, you know, they look like us. Uh, but if you were a species, what would you do? Where would you go if you managed to time travel? Well, you wouldn't do anything to hurt yourself. You wouldn't go into the past because you could you could damage the timeline. But what you might want to do was go and have a look where things end up. To me, that's more logical because you can't really do any damage by doing that. If you go to the end, you can see where the planet's going and, and you know what's going to happen when things start to deteriorate, which they clearly are. Uh, you know, how's it going to finish up? Well, that also neatly explains things like why you get cattle mutilations and you get abductions and you get, you know, people being examined by these things coming in these ships. Now, I personally think that somewhere in the past, one of these super races managed to crack the problem of time travel or dimensions, one or the other. They managed to solve a problem that we're only really struggling with now. And they can, you know, I mean, Einstein said time's not linear, you know, it's folded. So they've somehow managed to jump the gap. Mm -hmm. And I, I think they're just coming to have a look where we end up. And somewhere in all that, they're probably not happy with what we're doing either, because they don't seem to like anything that's nuclear. They don't seem to like anything that's environmentally threatening in any way. Mm -hmm. So clearly they're looking at the planet from their perspective going, well, you know, what can we do maybe to improve matters? You know, mm -hmm. um, maybe we do need some form of intervention at this time. And that's why they're here. But I think they're actually from our distant past. I know people use things like, you know, Atlantis, Lemuria and, you know, pre-flood and, you know, they use all these labels. But clearly there were civilizations that went back, you know, maybe tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands even of, of years BC. Uh, and maybe just one of them, just maybe they cracked this problem of how to zip back and two in time. So they're not actually leaving the planet. They're not coming from Mars or anywhere outside the, the you know, the orbit of right. planet Earth. They're just using what we have here in a completely different way to the way that we are using it at the moment. That's my kind of take on it. So uh, I'm a firm believer in aliens. I, um, I saw a couple of UFOs in the 1970s. Um, mm. One of them up here in Northern England is, is quite well known now. Um, and I was a witness to that. So obviously they're there. You know, I'm, I'm convinced that they're there. You never know. Watch this space. I might end up doing something in the way of ancient aliens in the future. You never know. Well, it's interesting to think because when they came, when and if they came back, say in ancient times in Egypt or wherever, we were well. We, the technology wasn't there. You know, where we hadn't advanced. I mean, we, we advanced, but we hadn't. Even though there's, there there might be an electric light bulb over in Egypt, we don't know. You know. It's um, a good question. Was the, was the technology there? Right. Um, I said this to somebody in another interview. You know, by the time Noah was trying to build his ark, his particular civilization had had three thousand years to get to that point that mm -hmm. we knew that we know of. Uh, so his ark would be a thousand years more advanced than us, because we've only had two thousand years in effect mm -hmm. to get to where we are. So you know, we've not advanced particularly quickly. So what about people like the Egyptians? Because they claim to be 12,000 years old. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, what kind of technology did they have? Also, they made different choices to us. You know, uh, you go to India and there are entire villages that have just been turned to glass. 
by what appears to be a nuclear aerial burst explosion. Mm -hmm. So maybe somebody was literally mucking about with nuclear power in their you know, back garden shed. It blew up, it wiped a village out, and they went, right, that's it. We're not going near that ever again. Forget mm -hmm. it. Bad idea, you know. So maybe we're thinking we're really advanced, but we're actually mucking about with things that we really shouldn't be mucking about with um, that these guys have done in the past. And maybe they're doing something, like I say, completely different from us. That maybe their entire technology is focused on wavelength or mm -hmm. light, you know, um, on the passage of time. I mean, Tesla, you know, did a lot of experiments in right. electricity, light, wavelength, you know, things like that. Um, he's just maybe he's triggering something off that mm -hmm. a thousand years from now will finish up with us time traveling. Right. And yeah. who's to say that back in the, in the days of Egypt, there weren't people like Tesla either. You know that 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 we're creating stuff like this because I mean well, history yeah. tends to repeat itself. It does. You go into the great, you know, you go into the great civilization. Look at the Romans. Yeah. You yeah. know they took it so far, and then that was it. Well, so don't I, don't forget don't forget what I said earlier about these guys with the enormous heads and the gigantic right. brains. Right. They were literally everywhere. They were all over the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were in Russia, they were in Europe, they were in the East, they were mm -hmm. on the Americas, they were absolutely everywhere. So if you've got one of these guys and he's still alive, you know, he might have the capacity to do things and calculate things and make decisions. I mean, his memory capacity alone would be enormous, you know, and they'd mm -hmm. be passing, passing information from one of these people to another. Uh, he would radically change the way that, that we as human beings were living our lives in what he knew, what he knew and what he was capable of doing. They only died out four or five hundred years ago you know um yeah you know that's that's pretty mind-boggling um maybe some of these aliens inverted commas have got that kind of mental capacity mm -hmm. um you know it wouldn't surprise me if an alien doesn't you know land on the white house lawns in a big silver disc one day and comes marching down there like they do in you know some of the sci-fi films, you know, we come in peace. And probably the next thing he's going to say to whoever greets him is, you've got to stop it. Mm -hmm. Stop ruining the world. Stop mucking about with things like, you know, oil power and getting all this plastics in the sea and mm -hmm. stop messing about with nuclear and all the rubbish flying around up in, in, in the atmosphere. You know, just stop it because mm -hmm. you're killing yourselves, you know. That, it would not surprise me if that wasn't the second thing out of his mouth after, you know, we come in peace. Bigger well, brain, sense. more intelligence. Anyway, go on. Off you go. Well, it makes sense <laughs> because, you know, when you think, like I said, history has been repeating itself yeah. all along. And so these aliens are there observing. That's what they're yeah. there. They're observing, maybe helping us here and there, you know, with the technology of, put, of putting the ideas in people's heads. Because you don't know, you know. Yeah. Where's Tesla getting his info to build, to yeah. build all this stuff? And oh, there's well, there's a huge amount of evidence, um, even for us as Homo erectus, that we've got capacities right. where certain ones of us can actually see what's going on in time. Right. You know, um, in the Old Testament, we had prophets, you know, who mm -hmm. foretold what was coming. And that kind of carried on. I mean, right through to the modern day spiritualist movement. There are people who are coming out with things that then proceed to happen. Mm -hmm. So take that backwards. Let's assume that we're bad at it. Let's say we're the worst at it there's ever been. And the people in the past were better at it than, than we are. Mm -hmm. Then what kind of future could they see? Because they're not going to change the future by just looking at it. Mm -hmm. You know, so, yeah, absolutely. They, they must have lived their lives, right. you know, with memories of the future that then helped them to live in the present. 
you know, and we've lost that as a skill. Yeah, we have. Gone, yeah. You know? Well, like I was saying too, <clears throat> these aliens have seen us take this technology in the past and blow ourselves literally up. And so yeah. what they're watching now is the same thing play over. Yeah. Yeah. Only we have more scientists out, or we think we have more scientists out that are handling things, but they're seeing the replay, which is why maybe they're getting concerned because they're, yeah, um, because they're seeing us come to a peak and then that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, something's coming. Uh, uh, the book is really optimistic. Actually, the, the conclusion I reach in the book is basically to say there are things we can do that mean we do survive. You know, um, if we look at the positive side of things, uh, you know, get rid of all the specialists that know more and more about less and less, right. you know, and get rid of scientists that don't actually morally have a responsibility for what they discover, you know, and try and bring back together some kind of social structure that unites us. And there's a distinct possibility that we might actually survive another hundred years or more, you know, preferably. Um, but if we don't sort it out, if we just end up with a tiny elite bunch of people that think they know best and they're running it all and, and you know, the shoe doesn't fit because, you know, you know, one shoe doesn't fit every foot. You know, you can't go all the way around the world and make something work everywhere. You know, what might work in the deserts of North Africa certainly isn't going to work in Antarctica. You know, it's a very diverse world. We need to embrace that as a race. We need to you know, come up with some kind of a broader plan, a bigger plan that these guys with enormous heads would easily have been able to come up with, given all the knowledge that's available. I mean, we've got the internet, for goodness sake. It's probably the biggest, you know, the biggest, you know, um, uh, depository of knowledge since the Library of Alexandria. We should be doing a better job of this. You know, there's no excuse. We really should um, as a human race. But the book ends on a positive note. I, I think generally speaking, as human beings, we should be able to get our act together, you know. Just got to get rid of the rubbish first. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what's next for you? Um, what's coming up next? Well, I'm going to try and get this band's album out that I've just recorded. It'd be nice to see, you know, some music out there. It's about 14 or 15 tracks, I think, you know. It'd be nice to have that released. Um, now I've got Crystal Skulls out, and that book's out on release. You can go and get it in Amazon. I'd like now to conclude the King Arthur book. Obviously, that's coming up next. It'd be nice to actually have that done and dusted. I've not got the final approved cover for that. That's all that's kind of holding us up at the moment. Uh, as soon as we've got a cover for it, it's pretty much ready to go. Um, then, like I say, I'm, I'm going to start looking at some biblical material. Excuse me, I think, because there's, uh, through the Arthur book, an awful lot came out that, that you know, we need to know excuse me, need to know about that early period of history because uh, mm -hmm. socially I think it impacts on the whole of the Western world. So, you know, basically if God's got something to say, you know, whether it, God's a spaceman or some kind of spiritual entity or whatever you choose to believe, if God's got something to say, it's worth saying. So I'm going to try and put that in a book. So that that's coming up. Um, more of the same then, you know, plenty of uh, archaeology and history and hopefully a bit of um, television. Maybe on internet or, or you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Wait and see. Wait and see what comes up. I'm just, I've, I, know, I know a few things that I can't give away. I can't really say anything at this That's point. That's cool. That's cool. Now, my last question is, you're in Las Vegas. Right. And you're standing on a street corner with a with, with other historians who, who have written book on King Arthur. Let's say King Arthur because that's coming up. Yep. You have written books on King Arthur. How do you get people to read your book? 
Um, I'd probably try and find the biggest illuminated bill hoarding in the whole of Los Angeles, <laughs> or even project it on a side of a building if I was left to do it to my own devices. And I would just basically put an advert up that said, this is the best book on King Arthur ever written. And at the end of the day, there's quite a few experts that agree with me as well. If you read the endorsements, it's it's an absolute humdinger. I mean, it's taken half a century, you know, to decode something that's half a millennium old. So there's got to be some mileage in that. So, yeah, I'd stick a whopping great big advert up perhaps on the side of a building and just go, you know, buy this because you really need to. You know, this will transform your view. Um of a lot of issues, you know. I mean, there's Druids in there, there's early Christianity in there, and there's King Arthur. So, you know, it's uh, Merlin, Joseph, and Arthur. Those are the three characters I'm focusing on. So uh, if you want to know the truth, go and buy the book. I like your style. I do. Thank you. I like your style. I like your enthusiasm. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. You on again. When King Arthur comes out, I want to get you on again to talk King Arthur. Oh, definitely. Please do. Please do. I'd be yeah. glad to come back. How can people find you? Uh, really simple. If you want to buy product, uh, head for Amazon and just mm-hmm. type my name in. They're all on there. There's about, I don't know, half a dozen books or so. And if you want to get in contact with me, I'm currently on Facebook. Uh, so you can friend me and then you can message me through Messenger. And those are the two main ways to get in contact with me. Let's keep it simple. Uh, you'll find me eventually. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Have a great evening. And I really Thank appreciate you. you coming on. I really do. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, sir. Have a good evening. See you soon. Bye-bye. Okay. Well, that was Mark Ollie. That was fascinating. I, I am a history buff. I'm an archaeology buff, and I love talking to people like, like him, and he's just so enthusiastic with stuff. And before I sign off, I want to make the correction that the show I was referring to earlier is not Highlander. It's Outlander. I don't know why I have Highlander on the head. All right, so it's Outlander, not Highlander on Netflix. All right. Anyway, um, if you guys like the show, please do, uh, if you're watching from Facebook, please hit that follow button. If you're watching from YouTube, please subscribe. If you're watching from TikTok, subscribe. If you're watching from from, uh, Twitch, please subscribe. And Twitter. We'll do that to Twitter, too. But uh, it's fascinating. In fact, I'm going to pick up a copy of his Crystal Skulls book because I'm fascinated by that. Like I said, I'm absolutely fascinated by that stuff. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here, you know, because we want to get the word out about this show. And uh, YouTube tends to show us no love, but, you know, it's just the breaks. But we're getting there. I mean, it's because of you guys listening. Our numbers have doubled. So, boom, let's keep, let's keep, keep it rolling. Keep sharing, keep sharing, keep sharing. Anyway, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, and uh, have a good evening. And I'm going to share uh, Mark's books with you, so a, couple, a couple of Mark's books with you, so that you can get, get them at Amazon. So here we go. That's Crystal Skulls and Human Heads. Beautiful skull. Beautiful. By Mark Ollie, like he said. And then you got... The Disappearing Ninth Legion. And of course, you can get them at Amazon. You can find Mark on Facebook and Messenger. So there you have it. Easy easy peasy, right? All right. Now, this is the time I big. I work on donations and 
I like to keep guests coming in like Mark and, and, uh, and other people. And if you like those guests as well, and I, you know, and in addition to all that, because California Haunts is a pair, is, is a not technically a nonprofit. So everything that happens with the team, everything that happens with the radio show, whether it be internet fees, you know, from Comcast or whatever comes out of my personal pocket. So if something breaks, boom. Okay. So if you guys could find it in your heart to help me out a little bit, that would be great at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you don't like PayPal, Venmo, and then just type in California Haunts. I'd really appreciate it. Love keeping the show on the air. We're, we're starting our third year in September. So I'm really excited. So, uh, okay. Anyway, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Here we go.